You are listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. With Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Welcome to episode 32 of It Sounds Like Science. It's getting warmer here at last, Simon. Yeah, we survived somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Minus two degrees. (laughs) Oh, It was was colder than that here. I live quite close to Benson, which is frequently the coldest place in the country, and it's been minus minus seven, minus eight at least around here. It got, um, yeah, I think it was minus five. For those (laughs) non-UK listeners, we're talking about... The, the beast from the east, or the elephant in the room, as we're calling it, well, for this show. But, um, yeah, this is basically a, a few days of mildly discomforting weather that basically ground the entire country to a, to a shuddering halt. Well, made, uh, we're just living up to our UK stereotype of just, yeah. just talking about the weather all the time. But, yeah, it was Radiance. unusual, though, wasn't it? There's quite a few records went, I think, in the, as a result of that cold snap. Really? I, I knew it was. Um, I think for the time of year, for early March, obviously, yeah, it was it was highly unusual because, peculiarly, earlier in February, it had been quite warm, and I was everyone was getting ready for spring, and my Kiwi neighbour had his shorts on. Actually, had his shorts on while it was snowing. You know, I was talking to someone from the Met Office. This was actually they were they were looking at things like stratospheric heating and all this mm. kind of stuff. And they, they, they actually predicted this about a month in advance. Yeah, yeah. So, which, you know, is remarkable, really, that, you know, they can start picking up telltale signs of, well, there's an imbalance here that could, you know, reduce pressure here, increase pressure here, you know, move the airflows. And, uh, yeah, it was freezing. <laughs> no, I won't go into any particular vulgarities. So the, the thing I, I was, the thing I particularly enjoyed because the the, the railways grind to a halt at this, the yes. nearest hint of a suggestion of snow, um, and I've got the the National Rail app on my phone, and uh, frequently um, it, it just comes up with National Rail has stopped working. <laughs> <laughs> so even their app is the same. Well, my but, station, but it's just like a, it's like a general catch-all. Yes, National Rail Every- is not working. We just stopped in advance, so basically they just stopped running trains the night before, and that was it. But my other station did, so I went very unusually for me in a suit and tie because his Serene Highness, he had to be called the Serene Highness, the Prince of Monaco, Albert II or Third, was in. And I had to cycle back about half an hour across, and I was absolutely freezing, and that done me in. And that was only about minus five. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the entire place just wound down, and everyone goes on holiday basically. The um, the coldest I've cycled in was minus nine, I think, and that was locally. Wow. And and the water in my water bottle froze into one of those slushies. So oh, okay. Very entertaining. And the early days of the internet, I used to follow a guy in Canada who who commuted by bike, and he would at the beginning of the, of the winter season he would just buy a bike and basically cover it in Vaseline. And then he would cycle. It's like 40 kilometres to work. It was a long way. And um, 
his bike would gradually just dissolve in all the salt over that winter. Really? And then he would throw it away and get another one for the summer or get his summer wow. bike out. Yeah, and, and so I, whenever I'm out on my bike and it's slightly cold, I just think of that poor guy <laughs> cycling in Canada. And he said that on a particularly bad day, if he was cycling into a blizzard, he would just look at his front wheel going round and just chant the mantra to himself, forward progress is progress. <laughs> so, I think that's what I do, just look down. You have to anyway, because you want to avoid the potholes. Anyway, so the beasts in the east. And now it's it's nice and spring-like again. So we had a sort of yes. a bit of a... Normal service has been resumed. <laughs> but maybe not on the trains. No, no, anyway. <laughs> well, it hasn't. Sorry, it's why I'm working from home. But that's another story. We'll while make we're... a different podcast about that. Well, from the Arctic to the Antarctic, I want to talk about these one and a half million penguins that they found. Um, <laughs> did you see this? No. <laughs> they... <Not by> accident. <laughs> They, they were discovered uh, from uh, an Earth observation spacecraft, um, and they've been... Uh, it's the largest population of Anta- on the Antarctic Peninsula, and it's on Danger Islands. Um, and they couldn't see them because heavy sea ice around the islands stopped people landing boats there. And it's meant that the territories basically just thrive because there's nobody been <laughs> going and poking at the <laughs> penguins. So one and a half million penguins, more than we wow. thought they were. <laughs> So anyway, so that, that's a uh, uh, quite an, an impressive um, achievement for a, a, a Earth observation spacecraft. And uh, yeah, wondering what on Earth um, one and a half million penguins looks like from space, but it, it's clearly visible. Wow. Wow. Well, talking of populations reappearing, my, one of my favourite animals, again, this is very British, is the red squirrel. Ah, yes. Thanks to my association with the Tufty Club. So you can look that on. So basically, a giant squirrel used to teach people, children, out across the road. <laughs> Again, you're getting a very. If you don't live in the UK, you're getting a glimpse into the British mindset. This is what it was like. Yeah, using an endangered animal <laughs> to teach children to cross the road. Yeah. So basically, these grey squirrels invaded uh, from Europe. Again, this is, again, another uh, British uh, mindset thing about the <laughs> European invader. And basically forced them out. And the red squirrels basically moved further and further north. But it, it turns out that a reintroduced, I'm trying to think of the, um, oh, what species it is, pine martin, which is basically the size of a cat, hmm. um, is a predator of squirrels. But it seems to be that grey squirrels are partic- not particularly good at escaping from these pine martins. So they, they, they're wiping out all the grey squirrels and the red squirrels that are particularly good at escaping their clutches and repopulating the areas so um yeah fingers crossed tufty might be back um you know i I thought some of the whole um issue was down to habitat as well i thought the red squirrels habitat was being lost as well and i think the grey squirrels are slightly more adaptable as to what sort of um, environment they lived in yeah, it was very. It's a mixed bag. It was disease. They were. Oh yeah, we've talked about squirrel leprosy on the podcast <laughs> before. <haven't> we? <laughs> if, you, if you want to give your children nightmares. <laughs> oh yes, I'm having. I'm having flashbacks myself. <laughs> so there, there are a number of issues. But the the uh, yeah, the, the poor old red squirrel. But it looks like the reintroduction in Scotland. Obviously, the pine martin. It'd be the typical thing. Would then destroy something else, and it'd just be the usual kind of endless cycle of. Uh, of what the hell is going on? But, it was um, an old lady who yes. swallowed a fly and all that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, hopefully, I, there basically there's no red squirrels where I live in the south of England. In um, well, just north of London, and so um, it's all parakeets yeah, around it, London, isn't it? 
there were tons actually peculiarly <laughs> i got really excited thinking i'd seen an escaped one and then my wife pointed out to me that it's well known that there's just parakeet and then as soon as you look up where i used to live yeah it was just full of them so um yeah my, my i did point out to someone yesterday my knowledge of biology is quite limited so what i find exciting may not be exciting to other people but yes hopefully uh, the red squirrel is uh, on their way back in the uk Going from rare animals to very, very extinct animals, though, there was a news story uh, of a fossil baby bird, and it's one of the smallest birds ever discovered, 127 million years old, um, and it was, to all intents and purposes, a bird, but it shared the planet with what we would understand as dinosaurs, because we, some, of the, some subsets of the dinosaurs went on to, to evolve into the, the birds that we know. So um, it's... Uh, it's been described as the rarest of the rare, and it gives a peek into the lives of the ancient long-extinct birds that lived between 250 and 66 million years ago. I'm quoting here from the BBC website, as usual. Um, and uh, <laughs> the bird belonged to the, here we go, pronunciation challenge, Inantiornithine, in, I was so almost made that, Inantiornithine family. Um, so they had teeth, clawed fingers on each wing, but otherwise looked much like birds. Um, and it's really interesting. I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, read up around the the evolution of dinosaurs because since I was obviously obsessed with them as a kid, and so much has been learned in, you know, in the last ten years about um, uh, dinosaurs and dinosaur evolution. And it's the the thing about feathers. You know, where did they evolve in the evolutionary mm. tree? And they seem to have evolved maybe several times over you know as as hair and then maybe it became a uh, uh, display feature for for sort of mating um etc and, and at some point they became complex devices that enabled you to have a bit of lift when you flap your arms up and down but uh, nose to tail this hatchling is a little shorter than a human finger a little finger and weighed wow. just weighed just 10 grams this fossil must have died not long after leaving the egg. Um, so it's an, in- an incredibly rare fossil, and it helps us understand not only the evolution of these animals, but also the development of the animals. Because if you only ever found the adults, you would never know quite how they, they came to yeah. be. So, and once again, uh, a synchrotron was used to um, to study the, the chick in the in the rock. So physics to the rescue again. I must admit, when I read it, the first thing, this is terrible, again, a glimpse into the British mind. The first thing that popped into my head was Orville, the <laughs> green baby duck. And I don't know why. why? <laughs> Getting flashbacks to your childhood. <laughs> a horrific flashback. <laughs> again, if you're outside the UK, this is a frightening glimpse into our mind. But look up Orville. I think it was meant to be a duck. Sorry, this is going yes. wildly off topic. Yes. But um, that's what popped into my mind. But A yeah, green, a green duck in a nappy. It's the sort of thing, really, that if you'd seen it on Euro Trash, you wouldn't, it wouldn't have been out of place, really, would it? <laughs> well, that's what. Uh, anyway, that's what's wrong with me. Okay, that's what my mind, the state of my brain, is like. That instead of thinking of wonderful science, I think of uh, terrifying childhood TV. But um, yeah, it's uh, absolutely unbelievable. And you say that the, the evolution of defense. I see it as almost like, um, as we're linking back to rhinos, like with the Triceratops, that idea of the horn, you know, it kind of comes back. That does, I shouldn't say design, because I wouldn't say, you know, this isn't intelligent design I'm just talking about. But, you know, mm. nature has a way of finding like 
the most efficient or you know use of or, or way of defense or whatever you know there are certain things that just come back into fashion evolutionary wise mm. and, you know it, it looks like feathers are it's, it's utterly unbelievable no and with the ceratopsians in a, in a book i was reading recently there was actually some debate as to whether some of them were just juvenile versions of the adult animal so like a bull elephant has enormous tusks but a little elephant would have much smaller tusks maybe mm. these ceratopsians are the ones with the much more elaborate sort of head crests yeah those could just be more mature adults than some of the ones that we're seeing in the fossil record so there's 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 some you know discussion about which ones are you know whether some of them are actually part of the same group but just different stages wow. of development yeah so it's it's all any any piece of evidence so to get a tiny fossil bird like this where some of its bone hasn't just developed it's still preserved as cartilage mm. that all gives you an information about how these things developed and gives us a, a sort of direct insight into what was going on at the time right wow. that's 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 finished that sentence <laughs> <laughs> what well, else talking, would you like to talk about well talking of things that are becoming extinct seeing we've had three of it well sorry <laughs> two now we've got the third is china's space station ah, yeah. that's number yeah. one that that's been um for those of you that haven't been following this story it's been out of control since i think 2016 i think the summer of 2016 so this was a space station that the the Chinese government launched, uh, I think it was about 2014, and um, they launched it kind of out of nowhere. So a lot mm-hmm. of these, obviously, it's a bit like the old Soviet Union, that your space um, agency always looks successful if you never put out when it's not been successful. So you, and you know, all of a sudden, China announced that they had a space station, and um, yeah, and uh, unfortunately, it appears that they lost control of it a couple of years ago, mm. and. Um, it's now coming back down to earth, but no one really knows where. So this ah. is a problem. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's coming down uh. some position on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably, these 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 will gradually get uh, refined as we work out. Well, yeah. it, the problem is it's tumbling, isn't it? And so that changes yeah. the way it's braked by the atmosphere, I imagine. Yes, and that's the problem. So yeah, you, you can't really say because obviously, if it's you know, a cylindrical shape or something like that, you know it's going to come in at a fairly, you know, controlled way. Where it is, you know, it hits it, it starts spinning, that affects it. it could, you could, Things can bounce off the atmosphere to some degree. Mm. And so it's it almost like a skimming stone on a, on a pond or something like that. So, yes, it, it kind of depends where it's going to go. Skylab, I think, came down originally, didn't mm. it? Semi-uncontrolled. I think it ended up in the Australian outback. Yeah, that's um, one of those stories where um, I think the, the, the shuttle was due to be launched to boost Skylab into a higher orbit, uh, like the shuttle did to the International Space Station mm. before it was retired. But it was a combination of a very active solar cycle, which meant you had a very warm and expanded atmosphere, which obviously was expanded up to the altitudes of, of Skylab and was therefore slowing it down more than it would normally do. And the fact that the space shuttle program was late meant that they lost that opportunity of saving Skylab. Yeah, and it fell. Bits of it fell on Australia. Um, I remember it's like a little spherical fuel tank and a picture of a rather puzzled-looking uh, sheep farmer stood next to it. I think it's in the museums out there. But I was reading about it. I can't remember where the quote came from, but someone said it's you know, be, don't worry. The, the chances of being hit by it are um, smaller than winning the lottery. But I was sitting there thinking, well, people do win the lottery, though. <laughs> thinking, yes. I, I'm sure someone has, every week wins the lottery. So I was thinking, hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I remember going out and watching Mia as it went over its one last time. I got like, the Russian space station. Really? Just, just saw that go over, yeah, for the last time, and then it, it burned up somewhere around the around planet. So, wow. Uh, yeah, that's a. Anyway, it was particularly spectacular. It was like a bright blob, like the International Space Station. Um, well. But on another space, sta- space story that caught my eye, have you seen these images that have been taken by Juno of Jupiter's mm. atmosphere? Utterly, utterly, it's spellbinding again. Um, I but, thought they were computer generated because they look yeah. too unreal. I know that sounds peculiar, but, you know, I just thought they were kind of computer knockups or, you know, it looks like a computer. I know that's all I could get my head around. It looks like special effects from a mm. movie like Star Trek or something. Unbelievable. But if you look at the North Pole, um, and we have, there's, I think we discussed the Saturn's poles with the Cassini mission. They, mm-hmm. they, they appear hexagonal because they're all kind of waves that are propagating around the pole and they, they give it this, this sort of what looks like a linear-sided hexagon. Whereas in Jupiter, you've got um, eight cyclones in a, in a ring going around the pole. And like you say, it just looks, it just looks computer generated. It looks like yeah, some sort of uh, close up of an octopus or something. <laughs> just <laughs> utterly amazing. But this is the Americans, uh, American Space Agency's Juno probe, um, which has been uh, in orbit around Jupiter. And uh, one of the things it can do is study the variations in the pull of Jupiter's gravity as it flies around the world. And they help it to determine what the the mass of the the, the the atmosphere underneath is, and so they can actually work out sort of movements within the atmosphere. And so the latest data seem to show that um, those spirals we see on the surface actually extend at least three thousand kilometers down into the atmosphere. Um, so the planet apparently is one hundred and forty thousand kilometers in diameter. Um, so it's it's a real, you know, a, a real breakthrough in understanding how the Jupiter's atmosphere works. I was trying to get my head around it, and I, I was kind of struggling from what I know about it. It's just <laughs> unbelievable. As I say, linking back to the first thing that, you know, trying to work out weather patterns on Earth, and now we're looking at effectively cyclonic behaviour or weather patterns on, you know, other planets. It's just remarkable what this has done. Yeah, it it did lead to one of my favourite tweets on on uh, uh, yesterday. I think it was where somebody somebody said it really does come to something where we know more about Jupiter than we do about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's another very well, British uh, British problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not go there. <laughs> anyway, I'll put the images up, but it's just fantastic. It's a record. It's about one percent of the mass of the planet is 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 moving in in the, the sort of the way that we see the, mm. the outer atmosphere moving and um yeah it's yeah remarkable i'm uh, just trying to read why um it says so this is uh dr tristan uh, guillot from the Côte d'Azur observatory in france um and he's uh, just authored a paper in nature describing these observations um and he's quoted as saying um um, it's a domain where the predominant gases of hydrogen and helium start to transition under immense pressure into exotic fluids. And uh, in contrast to the east-west motions that are seen on the surface, the entire interior mass of material appears to rotate in a uniform way as if it's a solid body. Mm. Um, and it's within this body that Jupiter's immense magnetic field is produced. Um, 
It's generated a bit deeper down when hydrogen becomes so highly compressed it becomes a metal and then changes, sorry, and then charges can move easily and you can have with convection what's called a dynamo effect, says Dr. Gio. Uh, Gio. I'll, I'll say that several different ways and edit the right pronunciation. Um, we still don't know whether Jupiter has a rocky core, um, but we're finding out a, a lot more information with these um, these observations. Uh, but you know, even if you don't give a hoot about what's actually going on in the structure of Jupiter's atmosphere, the pictures are amazing. Mm. Just amazing. Next. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think my last piece. Well, I've got. Um, I found out just for people who are interested that uh, there's. I don't know if you've heard of the Parker um, mission that's going to named after. Uh, oh, Eugene Parker, going yeah. To the sun, yeah. After yeah. the Parker Spire. Just a quick one. You can actually get your name put on the mission and flown into the sun. Wow. NASA, which I did this morning on behalf uh -huh. of my son. So <laughs> should you wish to, if you type that in, I, think, I don't know how they're doing it, because surely I'm, I assume they're not doing it on scraps of paper. Because, <laughs> <laughs> there won't be a, a big autograph book dangling <laughs> behind the spacecraft. Just going up thanks to, uh, you know, we've launched cars and now a giant, <laughs> you know, raft of paper with everyone's names on. We've had to gut the satellite so there's nothing inside it. But um, yeah, that or incinerate. But yeah, that that's coming along. And uh, yeah, if you wish to do that, I don't know quite the end of it, but you get a nice little certificate. <laughs> so, but is it digitally encoded? What's what's happening? Yes, I think it's going on a memory card from what I can gather. But it said a card, so I was a bit confused. <laughs> I was like, this like a moon pig. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! You see, you know they're quite small. I was thinking they're never going to fit in. But yeah, I think I, I calmed down a bit, and I think they were just encoding it somewhere anyway. So you can you can do that, or maybe get a card up there with your name on. I don't know. And, and this is this is for free, is it? It's just a, a this is publicity free. thing. Yeah, just to get it going. But obviously, I think this is the first mission to be named after a living scientist, isn't it? I think normally you you have to have unfortunately passed away. So. Um, yeah, Eugene Parker had made such a big impact in the world of uh, solar physics mm. that uh, he has the, well, I don't know if you call it honour, but yeah, being the first person to actually see his own satellite launching, well, hopefully, and getting yeah. data back. Wow. Well, I shall look forward to that. That's going to be quite incredible. When's it going to be launched? Oh, I think it's, I think it's the, this summer, but I might be incorrect, actually. It's either this summer or next summer. All right. Okay. Well, if I if I can find the link, I'll put it up on the Facebook page. Sounds like science. I'll put it up. Uh, um, You've got the, till the, the end links. of April. I know uh -huh. that to, okay. to get your name on this uh, large card. Has <laughs> <laughs> it got a badge on it? <laughs> it's pop up. <laughs> uh, fabulous talking to you as usual, Simon. You too, Chris. <laughs> Speak Take soon. Care. Bye. You have been listening to Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science. Sounds Like Science with Professor Chris Scott and Dr. Simon Foster. Tweet us at SL Science.